plus a, plus um, some of these things that have been handed out. Um, who needs copies of what I handed out on uh, Wednesday? Okay, I think these are. Let me keep a copy. I think these are still all together. So just it's sh three sheets, and they're um, cr they're uh, crisscrossed with each other. And then here is. Um, did it really flip? Don't tell me that. No, it didn't. Oh, isn't that nice? Okay. Um, uh, these are two sheets apiece, so, um, and they're, they're collated. So it's um, a poem called On the Death of Mr. Crashaw by Cooley. Spelled Cowley, but pronounced Cooley. <laughs> collated, collated. Yeah, one sheet says Abraham Cooley on the death of Mr. Crashaw, and the other says Enriches Offering of Loretto's Shrine. Those are the tops, top lines of each sheet. Okay, so... Um, I hope you were stunned by Crashaw. Um, he's not the strangest either, but he's strange. Um, but let's do spend a little time on two more Herbert poems, because why, Leah? What were you saying about me and Herbert? No, I was just saying that you know if he's talking about Jesus, it's probably. Yeah, well, but it could be done or it could be crash off. Or, it could be. Yeah, um, very well could be. All right, so the so let's. Um, but if, if, if on our final we made a case for Herbert because of that, you would at least give us credit. Yeah. Um, whereas if you made a case for Shakespeare, it probably wouldn't work. Exactly. Or Wyatt, for that matter. Although it could be the penitential Psalms, but we won't go there. If it's something like completely random that's turned into a workable metaphor, it's probably done. That's what it feels like. If it depends what you mean by workable. <laughs> if it works, it's done. If it's a bizarre metaphor that's random and doesn't work, it may be. Are you still burning babe again? It's still. No, I'm not talking about the burning babe. You love that poem, right? It was so cool. It's on fire. <laughs> Wait, it was cool and on fire. I think you got the poem. That's exactly right. It was both those things. Um, we call that an oxymoron. Wait, pass. Keep passing. Okay. Um, two more Herbert poems, and then we'll move on to Crashaw. Um, yeah, two sheets came around today, and... Um, is Chris Cross? Yeah, you should have a total. You should have, as of when Wednesday and today equals five sheets. Today is two. Wednesday was three. Okay, um, let us look at the poem. I guess let's look at um, Redemption, which we looked at briefly, but um, it's another example of the way in Herbert. Um, um, it's on page, it's, it's poem number 374, uh, page 305. 
Um, the way in Herbert, um, the there's a, there's a convergence of um, the, of desire and fulfillment of desire. Um, we were putting that on Wednesday as convergence of prayer and the answering of prayer, and we saw how that happened at the end of denial. Um, that is that he's essentially praying um, for God to hear him. And he'll know God hears him when he is able, not entirely through his own power is what's implied, um, able to express himself eloquently, able to say what he wants to say um, in a way that's appropriate to what you have to how you have to speak to God. But humans can't speak to God appropriately on their own. They need God's help in order to speak appropriately to God. So he knows that God's, how would you know that God isn't hearing you? This is, I'm just summarizing what we talked about last Wednesday. How would you know that God isn't hearing you? Um, well, like Claudius and Hamlet, you would know that God isn't hearing you if your prayer um, wasn't full-hearted. That is, that somehow you would have a sense of being heard. And I think this is psychologically something that, um, we experience all the time that if we if we express ourselves with enough urgency and enough full-heartedness and enough um, uh, um, attention to the reality of what it is that we're saying, there's a kind of psychological fact about humans that they can't they would they couldn't believe that they're not being heard. Um, that's part of. For psychological reasons, that's part of the incentive of speaking passionately, is that um, we believe when we're speaking full-heartedly and with real passion, we believe that that passion makes itself felt, communicates, it, communicates itself. Um, that's why people are sometimes incredulous when they speak with complete and utter sincerity and passion um, if they fail to convince someone else. Um, it's natural to people to think that if they put everything they believe <clears throat> into something, um, will be convincing. Um, and just think of times when that hasn't happened. Um, when you've made an, a completely honest and, and wholehearted appeal to someone else, and they've still rejected it. But our natural reflex, our natural belief, our natural um, unthought belief is that sincerity is con carries conviction with it. So Herbert is bringing that psychological fact of what it's like to be a person um, into a sense of what it's like to pray to God. That is, the, the sincerity and passion of your prayer um, is bound to um, get God to answer it, to hear and to hear you and believe that you mean it and, um, and understand that you know the rightness of what you're asking for. The theory would be something like, again, I'm not saying that this is what, this is explicit to Herbert, but the theory would be something like you couldn't pray to God for something evil even if you were an evil person, you couldn't pray to God for something evil 
Um, because if you were praying to God for something evil, you just would have compunctions and misgivings about what you were asking for. Um, and those compunctions and misgivings would be the sign that you weren't really praying, the sign that what you wanted was evil. No matter how passionately you want something, um, you couldn't get wholehearted in your relation to God in expressing your passion for that thing because you wouldn't express it to God if it's the wrong sort of thing. So the very fact that you can pray passionately to God, again, I mean, seriously, think about this in your own experience. All these poems are worth it because they're about human experience and to some extent about all human experience, everyone we've read. Um, even Southall is about the burning babe, you know that one, is about human experience. <laughs> Um, so just think about um, how you feel when in, you know, in certain very bad circumstances or very worrisome circumstances, um, you, as everyone does, no matter how atheistic they are at other times, um, you pray for um, a good outcome. And, but you only do that when you sort of feel that a good outcome is, um, it's unselfish of you to pray for that, or it's, um, you really mean it. So if you're, you know, if some relative of yours is sick or is waiting for the result of a test, um, and you really want that person to be okay, um, one reason that you think that really wanting it and wanting it to, at the level that it turns into prayer, one thing you think, one reason you think that prayer should be granted is because you're wanting it as nothing of selfishness in it. You want it for that person, not for yourself. If you wanted it for yourself, you would, you would sort of like repress that thought because God might punish you. Um, but if you really want it for that person, um, then you'll allow that to come out sort of fully articulated in your own mind um, because what you're wanting is something that it's also good and right to want. And so it's just a part of human psychology um, to um, think that when you're wanting something that it's good and right to want, when you're wholeheartedly praying for something that it's good and right to pray for, the fact that it's good and right to pray for it makes it possible for you to be wholehearted, not to think that there might be ulterior motives behind what you're doing. And the fact that you're doing it makes you feel that it's half granted. That is, that, it, that you can't conceive how it wouldn't be granted um, if there were a God. Um, so Herbert is taking that, does that make sense to people as a psychological state? Um, where if something bad actually did end up happening, you just wouldn't be able to believe it. So Herbert is taking that psychological state and describing it um, as itself a sign of prayer either being granted or not being granted, um, as is Claudius in Hamlet. That is, Claudius is thinking of his crown, his own ambition, and his queen. Everyone knows that speech, right? Um, 
so um, Claudius is thinking of his crown, his own ambition, and his queen. Um, he's unable to simply say to God, forgive me my foul murder, because he's thinking about those things for which he did the murder, those effects for which he did the murder, and which he's not ready to give up, which he's not willing to give up. If you bargain, you're not wholehearted. Um, Claudius is at best bargaining with God. Um, you know, please listen to my prayer, but also let me keep this stuff that I murdered my brother to get. I mean, since he's already dead, and it's just the two of us, um, let me keep this stuff. Um, that's what Claudius's prayer is like. Um, that idea of prayer is something like what you also get in Herbert, which is that if you're wholehearted, um, then your prayer is going to be heard by God. And being wholehearted is something that comes from God's grace. So the two things kind of collapse into each other or converge, to use the word I used before. Um, and that convergence comes from um, the poem suddenly becoming eloquently urgent and urgently eloquent. So when he's thinking about um, pleasures or the war and thunder of alarms and all the things that he's thinking about instead of thinking about God, um, his poem is going all over the place. Um, it's not focused wholeheartedly, single-heartedly on God. Um, it's just going off in all different directions. And for that reason, it's not catching fire. It's not becoming <coughs> eloquent. But when finally the fact that it's not becoming eloquent becomes more and more an urgent fact for him, it's then that he can really um, pray to pierce those silent ears, really try to say, look, I really, really, really want you to help me. And when he really, 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 really does want God to help him, he can say it right. They in my mind may chime and mend my rhyme. And when he says it right, that's the sign of wholeheartedness, which is the requirement for God's help. So look at the poem called Redemption. Um, and notice again here that what we're getting is this kind of circularity of cause and effect. That's the main thing that um, uh, you can, how you can describe this structurally which is um, the cause of God helping me would be my praying to him. Um, but my praying to him is the effect of his helping me. Um, but he helps me because I pray to him right. But I pray to him right because he helps me pray to him right. Um, so that, um, what sounds circular, um, in fact, it would be better to see it as a convergence of desire and um, aid in the expression of that desire, um, aid that comes if you really try, but you only really try if you're getting that aid. So it's, it's um, better to call it reciprocal than circular. Circular is a bad word, I mean, generally an argument. We talk about circular arguments as arguments that um, assume what they're supposed to prove. But reciprocal is a way of describing the relationship of Herbert to God in the mode of prayer. Um, he prays to God, God helps him. He prays to God, God helps him. Um, redemption actually is circular, though. Um, not Again, not quite in the bad sense, but um, more obviously circular. 
than, or more openly, more overtly circular than a poem like Denial. Um, it's a sonnet. We've gone through it once, but look at it again. Um, it's, again, typical of, of Herbert's skill and technique. Um, and the speaker is describing how he got a new lease from God um, and um, how amazing it was that he got this new lease. Um, everything that we said about sonnets and that we'll continue to say about sonnets when we talk about Milton, um, you should bring into play to see how this one works. So he's got a story to tell, having been tenant long to a rich lord, not thriving, I resolve it to be bold and make a suit unto him to afford a new small rented lease and cancel the old. So we talked about this before. What's the old lease? What's the new lease? Yeah, the new law versus the old law. Um, the what Paul calls the circumcision of the flesh and then the circumcision of the heart, um, all sorts of different ways to describe it. But it's essentially that Jesus comes and says, um, I'm bringing the new law now, um, not the old law. I'm bringing the spirit and not the letter. I'm bringing the meaning and not the ritual anymore. Um, and that's a huge relief for people who can't possibly keep all the commandments of the old law um, single-handedly and single-heartedly. Um, so that's the standard um, claim that um, Paul and the New Testament promoters of the New Testament are um, asserting, that the Old Testament is about actions which um, God requires of the Hebrews but it's impossible to do everything. And not only is it impossible, but it doesn't do anything for your understanding of God and understanding of God's mercy and so on. Whereas Jesus comes and Paul comes and they tell you the meaning of all those things and that it's the meaning that matters. Um, and um, sometimes when the meaning matters, that's harder rather than easier. Um, it's not that the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life, so relax. Um, very famously, um, Jesus says that in the old law, adultery is um, a sin. But I say unto you that he who looks at a woman, even with lust in his heart, it is as though he has committed adultery. So in the Old Testament, it's if you actually have sex with someone else that you're committing a sin. In the New Testament, it's if you look at someone and have a sexual thought about them, that's the equivalent of adultery. Jimmy Carter very famously had copped to adultery in his heart when he was running for president um, and almost lost to Gerald Ford, which was a really hard thing to do. Um, but uh, but he, um, what he was referring to is, yeah, you know, not, not committing adultery in your heart, that's really hard. Um, so um, that's the difference, though, between the letter and the spirit. Um, so, and generally the idea would be that, that keeping the spirit is easier, is, show, is, is um, accepting God's mercy, whereas keeping to the letter of the law is not thinking of a merciful God, but simply of a God who demands absolute obedience to the letter of the law. Um, this is what comes up, some of you will know, in Merchant of Venice, 
um, when um, Portia says to Shylock, you have to be merciful. Um, don't insist on a highly legalistic reading of the bond that you and Antonio signed. <clears throat> so that bond would be, in The Merchant of Venice, the equivalent of the Old Testament, the old law. Um, but show mercy, because if you don't show mercy, mercy won't be shown unto you. Um, if you look for justice, watch out, because you're going to get justice. Um, so that's how the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Um, justice is dangerous to human beings, because none of us is sufficiently um, just in our actions that we won't be punished, and won't be justly punished. But if we do mercy, then mercy will also be shown to us. And doing mercy um, is what we all want. That's what Portia says in Merchant of Venice. Um, so here, the speaker of this poem has a really hard legal and financial obligation to meet. He's underwater, as they now say. Um, having been tenant long to a rich lord, not thriving, that is, he's not thriving. I resolve it to be bold and make a suit unto him to afford a new small rented lease and cancel the old. In heaven at his manor I him sought. So what does line five tell you about this poem? That. Yeah, that it's not just uh, something that actually happened um, in Middlesex County last yeah. week, um, but that this lord to whom he is tenant, whose tenant he is, is, well, the lord. Um, the only one. In heaven at his manor I him sought. They told me there that he was lately gone about some land which he had dearly bought long since on earth to take possession. Um, that, by the way, is how possession was, was pronounced then. Um, so um, the only thing that's making this about God and humanity are the place names. If, it, if the place names were changed, this still could all be a literal narrative, a literal story. Um, the only way that you know it's not literal are the names of the places. Um, so, in heaven and his manner I am sought, they told me there that he was lately gone about some land which he had dearly bought long since on earth to take possession. So how did he buy this um, new land on earth, yeah. What, like, biblically? Yeah. Um, Jesus' death? Yeah. Um, so um, what Jesus does by being crucified is he pays our penalty. Um, he pays very dearly for, for the crimes we've committed. So now it's really hard to make this metaphor work with um, the obvious meaning of the poem. So the obvious meaning we could say on a, on a sort of very, very um, uh, low resolution interpretation is the new lease is the New Testament, the old lease is the Old Testament. Jesus is the one who gives us the new lease rather than the old. Um, he does it, first of all, by coming to our world, that is through the incarnation, um, and 
not only coming to our world, but coming as a mortal to our world, as a mortal to our world, that is someone who will die, and not only coming as a mortal, he's a god, but he consents to become mortal. So that's the first amazing thing that he does. Um, but not only coming in, and when he didn't have to, we have to because it's our punishment to be mortal. He didn't have to because there's no reason to punish him. But not only does he come as a mortal, but the manner of his death is as bad as a death can be. So he has a much worse time as a mortal than most mortals do. Um, and he did all that despite the fact that he didn't owe anyone anything. We owe God a death, or to, which is a pun in Shakespeare, thou owest God a debt, which is um, the TH sound was actually pronounced hard in Shakespeare's day. That's why you sometimes see murder spelt M-U-R-T-H-E-R. Um, my foul murderer, but it's not murderer, it's pronounced murderer. Um, TH only became a th rather than a th sound um, after this era. So um, we owe God a debt, um, and debt could be spelled D-E-A-T-H or D-E-B-T. It's still what we owe God. But Jesus doesn't, didn't. The Son of God didn't. But he comes and pays the debt for us. He dies to pay our debt. So that's the theology. And that's dearly buying our, our redemption. So he should already have died. That is, he bought this land long since. So he bought it a long time ago. But now he's come to take possession of it. So when would this be in biblical eschatology? Revelation? Yeah. This would be at the end of times, that having bought earth and having bought, <clears throat> those, having bought salvation for those humans who will be saved, um, he will take possession of the earth at the second coming. So this really sounds like the second coming that's being described here, the second coming of Jesus, when he returns as the um, actual Messiah rather than um, the person who will come to return as Messiah. So um, it sounds like we're in messianic days then, if you read the first eight lines. He did this long since. In this case, it would be 1600 years ago, and now he's come to take possession of what he paid for with his crucifixion 1,600 years ago. Remember the Dunn poem at the round Earth's imagined corners? Blow your trumpets, angels, and arise, arise, you numberless infinity, infinities of, body, of souls, and to your scattered bodies go. So that's Dunn saying, I wish it were the end times, millenarian times, the second coming, the end of the world. But then he says, whoa, slow down, but let them sleep and me mourn apace. Because when it actually is time for the second coming, then tis late to ask abundance of thy grace. So Dunn is looking to stay the time before 
the second coming comes, before God takes possession of earth, in order to be able to pray and to repent and to meditate and to make himself worthy of salvation. Because when the end times come, it's too late for that. Yeah. Oh, you see your hand not up? No, okay. Um, yeah. So if that's true, then right now he's trying to convert from the first law to the second one? Yeah, or he's asking, what he's doing is, I mean, what's happening here is it's as though there are three different times that are, that are simultaneously occurring or that are overlaid in this poem. So one is um, the usual Israelite complaint about God, um, which has God remarking to Moses, look, I'm going to kill them all. And Moses saying, no, really don't. But the Israelites are just constantly saying, you know, why, are, why is it so hard? Why are we being treated like this? Um, and they always have to have leaders and prophets who tell them to shut up um, and realize that they're actually lucky. Um, so that's before the coming of Jesus. Then Jesus comes and says, you're right, it is hard um, and pointlessly hard. Um, here is a truer and more merciful and deeper way of relating to God. And um, that's the New Testament. Um, and so in the first quatrain of the poem, having been tenant long to a rich lord not thriving, I resolved to be bold and make a suit unto him to afford a new small rented lease and cancel the old. That's like the Israelites saying, this is too hard. The yoke of, the yoke of God is too hard. Um, I, we, we, we don't want this. We didn't ask for this. Um, you know, a golden calf, that might be nice. Um, having a king, which is another example of Israelite fractiousness. Um, everyone knows that, that in the Book of Kings they say, we want a king just like the other nations. Um, and um, uh, Nathan and, um, and um, who is it? Um, who is it? Whatever the prophet is, says, don't be fools. Um, you have a king, his name is God. Um, yeah, Samuel. Yes, of course. Um, Shmuel. And, um, you can't translate into English. Yeah. Um, and they say, no, 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 we want a king. And finally they get their king, and that was a mistake. Um, but they're constantly kvetching, um, to use the technical word from Protestant eschatological studies. Constantly kvetching. Um, um, I forget the Greek spelling of that. Um, <laughs> So he's fetching here. Yeah. Well, I was going to, could you make an argument that by saying that he had long since bought this or that he had long since said that he was going, this is his payment, that you could, he could be, well, I don't know if he'd be referring to Dante, but like, it makes me kind of think of Dante. Why? Because when um, Eve and Adam committed the first sin uh -huh. and they were cast out, yeah. I, I don't remember the exact terms, but um, Dante's God in the story said something like, you don't you don't understand what you've done, and now someone is going to have to come and, like he implied that they have now set into motion that his son must die for them. Yeah, um, and it's I think that ultimately you have to understand it something like that way, but the fact that he's temporalizing this as he does, that is he's now going to take possession of land that he bought a long time ago. 
Um, so, so there is a temporal discrepancy between those two times. And he didn't buy it when Adam and Eve sinned, even though he may have been forced to buy it at that point. That's like when you break the window um, with the baseball. And you wouldn't say, well, that's when my parents bought the replacement window. Um, although you might say that's when it was inevitable that they would have to buy it. Um, and I, th I think that, that um, if the poem weren't so resolutely temporal about talking about before and after over and over again, um, you, could, you, could, you could concentrate on that. Um, but it is resolutely temporal. And, and I think ultimately you're right, but how we get there is what's important. Yeah. Could you argue that when he says when he dearly bought long since on earth was just his being born as a human? And then when it says to take possession, it's the crucifixion? Because like in the Bible, Christ was crucified around murderers and thieves. Yeah, yeah, which is the point. Um, oh, okay, but then I'm not seeing the discrepancy because it's all, it's not the second because he is Because he was lately gone about some land which he had dearly bought long since on earth. Well, I see the crucifixion is lately gone. No, 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 but I went to heaven, okay. and they said he's just gone to earth to get okay. some land that he bought a long time ago. Okay. So it's the, the fact that he had lately gone is what, what doesn't quite make your reading work. Um, so a long time ago, he bought this land. Now he's taking possession. Um, it's, it's time for the closing. Um, and um, dearly bought... Um, therefore, it has to mean something like um, his passion. As you'll see in Milton, um, well, you won't see because we won't do these poems. As you'll see if you ever take Milton and Spencer in Milton. Um, Milton, when he was young, wrote, well, you all know The Morning of Christ's Nativity is one of his famous poems. Um, so it's a, it's a Christmas hymn. Um, so here is, it's, it's Christmas and and. Christ was born, and it's all great, and it's a, celebra it's a poem of pure celebration um, that Christ was born, so it's all happy. Um, this is followed by a poem called On the Circumcision, which is he feels <clears throat> terrible pain for the first time. Um, he's a Jewish child, so he's circumcised, so he feels pain. And this is God feeling pain. Um, and for Milton, it's a typological anticipation of the crucifixion. Um, it's one theory of circumcision. It's not what is what Genesis says, but it's one theory of circumcision um, that it reminds you, if you're a little boy, um, that life is not a picnic, um, that we're fallen, that we're um, that we live in pain and sorrow, that we live in a world of pain and sorrow. And Milton seems to have something like that theory that it's that that um, Jesus is wounded, mutilated is um, what's happening there. He doesn't use the word mutilated, but it's, um, the point is that it's, that it's pain and, um, and bodily um, um, modification. And then he tried to write a third poem. This is when he's still very young, in his 20s. He, write, he tries to write a third poem um, called The Passion, which is about Jesus' crucifixion. And he begins writing it. And then he breaks off and he says, I have considered it and find there is no dealing with thy mighty passion. 
And then he, um, he published this fragment of a poem, and he said, um, the author finding that this poem was above his years gave it up. And the idea was that was too awful a subject for Milton to be able to write about. He, he didn't have poetic powers remotely adequate to describe the crucifixion and or the passion, which is the, the whole thing which ends in the crucifixion. Um, and that inadequacy um, is one way of saying that the, the dearliest bought thing that Christ did was to be crucified. Um, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, yeah, but his only begotten son, to die. So it's the death which is really paying the debt. Um, and so it would, to some extent, dilute what dearly bought meant if it meant being born. Um, it could mean that, but it's more powerful if it means the crucifixion. Yeah. Are we supposed the narrator? Are we supposed to assume that the narrator is a human soul, or that it's some kind of angel? Like, no, a human. Okay. It's the angels aren't bound by the Old Testament. Okay. <clears throat> are there angels? So, but so I mean, but that yeah. implies reincarnation. Well, no. See, now you're seeing what the, what's hard to understand about this. Angels in the Bible, but not in the early books, in the prophetic books, they're angels. Um, Jacob wrestles with a man. Um, and no, 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 it's, it's very clear that he wrestles with a man in Genesis. Um, and then there came a man and, and wrestled with Jacob all night. Um, and that man turns out to be God. Um, but there's no mention of an angel um, in that passage. Angel, the word angel is actually um, a Greek word for messenger, which is what the Hebrew word means. But Jacob doesn't wrestle with an angel. He wrestles with a man and then says, wow, I've wrestled with God all night. Um, and um, much later, the prophetic books split the difference. And so I think it's in Hosea that Hosea mentions the time when Jacob wrestled with an angel. But that's, a much, that's much later. Um, angelology is a much later part of the Old Testament. Um, than the narrative parts of, um, all the way through the court of King David. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's what's throwing me is the um, in heaven at his manner I him sought, and then I straight returned. Yeah. So this human soul has can go to heaven and come back to earth. Yeah. Right. But so what you that not supported by either of not the supported. Nice. Um, <laughs> the only way to understand it is by taking it a little bit the way Pilgrim's Progress, which we mentioned before, and which is, which is written about 40, 30 or 40 years later, is going to do allegory. Well, but it's the way others, I mean, the, the Pilgrim Progress didn't start. It's just very easy to see in Pilgrim's Progress that the names of places are, in a sense, their significance is for us rather than for um, the characters in the actual poem. So when the speaker says, I, in, and I, I saw for him in, in his manner in heaven, um, the speaker isn't um, describing some supernatural um, Elijah-like trip to um, another world. Um, in the fictional world, heaven is a place. Now, that's an allegorical world where heaven would be a place. Um, but that's the name of the manor that he goes to. Um, and then, um, the, is that why it's lowercase heaven and not 
and lowercase lord? I don't know that it's lowercase in the original, but right. uppercase and lowercase is less significant right. in the 17th century than it is now. Um, nouns would frequently be uppercased. Um, so, um, but I think that's why the editor, if it right. isn't an editorial decision, that's why the editor would, would put it lowercase. Um, you know, it's like that um, moment in, in um, what's the first one, not Bruce? It's Bruce Almighty, right? And the first and second mm -hmm. one's Evan Almighty? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so in Bruce Almighty, when, um, when Jim Carrey is, is driving down the road and there are signs saying, road close, go back, turn back now, you must turn back now. Um, so that's actually all allegorical. It means he's leading the long, wrong kind of life. Um, but as far as he's concerned, he's just driving down a road and hasn't noticed these signs saying the road is closed. Um, so as far as the speaker of this poem is concerned, heaven is just the place where um, his Lord lives. And it's Lord, you know, we use the word Lord about the Lord God um, because it's, um, that's the singularization of a relationship of authority and power um, over someone who's not a lord. So there's one lord, but in our lives there are many lords, and the one lord is like the many lords. But if you, you know, I mean, yeah, look, having been tenant long to a rich lord, um, the word lord there is like the word heaven and the word earth. It's a word that is clearly ambiguous, um, but tends to go towards the literal because it's a rich lord but clearly ambiguous um, between capital L Lord and small L Lord, um, but with a, with a bias towards small L Lord. But then he'd be leaving the Lord to go to the Lord. Um, well, the Lord's service is safe. Yeah, the like, Lord is an absentee landlord. No, no, but like you were saying that the first part was the Old Testament yeah. and the second part is the New Testament. Yeah. So if you read Rich Lord as the Lord of the Old Testament, yeah that he would be leaving the Lord of the Old Testament to go to the Lord of the New Testament. Well, but no, no, he's asking for a new lease from the old Lord. He wants, he wants a mortgage modification. I mean, it's, it's a lease, so it's not a mortgage. Okay. But he's, he's saying, look, you, you leased me um, this land where, where I do my farming. Um, you gave me some land, and um, I get to farm this land and to work this land, but I have to pay you for it. And it turns out that I can't make enough money um, doing that to pay you for uh, to pay you um, your quarterly rent on it. Um, you know that's called leaseholding, and that's a that's that's standard feudal and survival of feudalism post feudal um, up through the 19th century. Um, that's what serfs do is they farm land. That's what peasants do. Um, yeah, I misunderstood. Yeah, I okay. Yeah, all right. So he's saying, I just can't afford it. Can you, can you give me a break? Can you give me better terms? So having been tenant long to a rich lord not thriving, I resolved to be bold and make a suit unto him to afford. <clears throat> so, it's a, so he's pleading. He's suing um, in the sense of making a plea, not in the sense of, so sue me. Um, make a suit unto him to afford a new small rented lease and cancel the old. Actually, the reason you say sue me, that's a wrong use of the word sue. What you do is you sue to a court for relief from what the other person is doing. Um, so when someone says, I'll sue, what they mean is I'll sue to a court. 
Um, but then when that turns very naturally through a slight misunderstanding into I'll sue you, as though suing someone is um, putting them on the spot, whereas it's not. It's praying. You wouldn't, so pray me. Um, but that's what a suit is. That's what a lawsuit is. Um, that's, what it, that's also what a suitor is, is someone who is, who is making a, um, a plea to the person um, that they're in love with. Um, so having been tenant long to a rich lord, not thriving or resolved to be bold, make a suit unto him to afford a new small rent, at least and cancel the old in heaven. At his manor I him sought. Um, just it happens to be called heaven. They told me there that he was lately gone about some land which he dearly bought long since on earth. That's the name of the um, county that he bought that land in. Um, to take possession. I straight returned. And knowing his great birth, um, he's a rich lord and he's an aristocrat. Um, but his great birth also makes him who? The son of God, yeah. So what I knew about him was who his father was. Um, the son, so his father was God. Um, and therefore, he is the next in line in the God family. Um, so I straight returned, and knowing his great birth, sought him accordingly in great resorts, in cities, theaters, gardens, parks, and courts. That is um, the place where all the wealthy go, um, the kinds of people who are um, godly and who've been apparently been, um, are of the same social class as God, therefore the same kind of people. That's where I looked for him. But that list, I sought him accordingly in great resorts. Was he there? No. So I looked in cities. Was he there? No. Theaters? No. Gardens? No. Parks? No. Courts? No. He's going to all these places because he's not finding him in all those places where he would expect to find the Son of God. Um, now notice that he's telling this story. This is what we talked about before, but it's really worth seeing how Herbert does it. He's telling this story about how I wanted to ask God for a new lease. And we're 11 lines into the sonnet. And what we're expecting is that he's going to ask God for a new lease, and God is going to give him the answer, and then we're going to see how it works out. But we're 11 lines into the sonnet, and he still hasn't found the person that he wants to, that, that, he's at, that he wants to ask for a new lease. So line three is, here's what I wanted to do. Ask him for a new lease. Make a suit unto him. So we think we're going to get to that part of the promised story in the next line or two, but we don't. Instead, we get, I went to heaven, he wasn't there. They told me he was on earth. I went to earth, I looked here, I looked there, I looked everywhere. Um, almost Dr. Seuss-like. Um, he wasn't anywhere. Now the sonnet is almost over. And again, this is like done. This is like at the round earth's imagined corners. Um, the poem is, is just, just careening to its end. And there's almost no time left for what the poet wants to say. At length, I heard a ragged noise and mirth of thieves and murderers. There I him espied. 
So you know that, that experience when you're reading a novel and you're really hoping it's going to end happily, but we're down to four pages and three pages and the character we hope might not be dead is still dead and we're down to two pages and one page and there's one paragraph left and part of what you're thinking is can she really explain why that character isn't dead and why it's all just fine with only a paragraph left and now we're down to like two sentences and two lines of type and at some point you realize no way um, the character really is dead and that sucks so you've had that experience. Um, that's sort of the experience you're supposed to be having in this sonnet, um, which is he's got two lines le left before we get to the at length I heard a ragged noise and mirth. And we think, OK, two lines. Can he do it? Of thieves and murderers. I don't want to hear about the thieves and murderers. I want to know, can he do it? There I am a spied. OK, he's got one. He sees him, but there's one line left. You know, the 14-second the, the, the clock is tick, tick, ticking away. So he inbounds the ball with one line left. And it's an alley-oop. Who's straight? So straight means immediately. That's the word we need. Who's straight? <clears throat> Your suit is granted, said, and died. But what's really worrying us, I mean, I know you were on the edge of your seats reading this sonnet. And what had you on the edge of your seats and so worried and knuckles were white and you were so tense the first time you read it, is that he's only got one line left. How is he going to even say what his suit is in that line? The suit already took a line and three syllables. I resolved to be bold to make a suit unto him. What suit? A suit to afford a new small rented lease and cancel the old. So we're getting towards the end, and there I am espied and said, can you afford a new small rented lease and cancel the old, except there isn't time for that. So maybe there I am espied and told my suit, but even that, there's just not going to be enough time. So instead, what we get is there I am espied who, and we may even want to say who, you already said who it is. Get on with the suit. There's like no time left. The DVR is about to click off. Um, there I am, a spied who straight. He already knew the suit. Your suit is granted, said, and died. So that death is what? Allegorically? When does God die? Yeah. So the poem ends with the crucifixion. It already happened. That's the point. Okay, like, hold on. It's temporally, what did you call it? Wobbly time? Wibbly wobbly timey wimey. It's a doctor. Oh, it's yeah. like he can't be the rich lord, because if you see that as the Old Testament, Jesus wasn't in the Old Testament yet. Yeah, well, that's the, there you're dealing with Trinitarian issues, yeah, too. Yeah, so that's like, but if you say that Jesus is God, then yes, he was. That's why I thought... Like maybe it was the Dante thing where he, he said, like, this is what the payment is going to be. I, yeah. I can't remember the exact words, but he basically said, okay. this is what the payment's going to be. And so when I read it, I thought that, I thought that's what it was supposed to be. Because that's also why I thought dearly bought was him being born, because he dies at the end. Right, yeah. So any way that you try to make it consistent in human terms, it's not going to work. Well, wait. And that's not a bug, but a feature. 
Yeah. But then if you take the Trinitarian reading, it makes perfect sense because the Lord is already gone, but that's a different Lord who is the same Lord. Yeah, but that Lord never went to earth to take possession. But he did, though, that because he's still God. <laughs> yeah, well, that, yes, like, like okay, the, that's right. The, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The dearly bought long since. Yes. Then that's a okay. different so, than the one he finds. Do people remember the Nicene ring? Yeah. Everyone remember it? Mm -hmm. so they're all um, gods, so it still counts. Yeah. So it's so the ring is in the center is God, and it's the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is God. Um, but around the circumference of the ring, the Son is not, the Father is not, the Holy Spirit is not the Son. So... Um, the law of, um, um, what law is this in logic? If um, A is B and C is B, then A is C. Um, yeah, th um, uh, not sure. I, I think it's actually commutative in this case. But no, maybe, no, you're right, it is transitive. So that law doesn't hold when it comes to the Trinity. Um, all three are God and there is only one God, and all three are that one God, but they are all three distinct from each other. So the Son is not the Father, is not the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is God. The Son is God. The Father is God. Um, and that is the thing that um, you have to believe even if you can't understand it. You have to know all those facts even if they seem inconsistent to you. So. There's a similar inconsistency, you could say, about the, the temporal quality of this poem, which is that um, it seems to happen before Jesus comes, then after Jesus' crucifixion, and then at the very end, with Jesus' crucifixion. Um, all three things, that's, in a way, that seems to be the order. It's almost like a memento of sonnets. <laughs> um, so how do you make sense of that? Well. You can make, I think, um, a kind of interpretive sense. We wouldn't. We it would be wrong to call this allegorical, um, but we could call it um, uh, moral or anagogical, um, which is something like this: that um, every human being has to re-experience redemption by Christ. So for every human being, we have to experience Christ dying. I have to experience Christ dying for my sins. So we go from a historical idea, which is, yeah, back in 33 AD, Christ was crucified, to um, an internalization of that, which is, oh my God, I see it happening. He's being crucified for me. And what allows for that internalization is that he, by being crucified, has made it possible for grace to come to us sufficient to pray and to believe. So, so these things had to happen before in history in order that they should affect us in our personal lives <clears throat> enough that we should understand 
that he's dying for us. So there are three different moments, you could say, of the individual human being's understanding of what we owe to God. And those moments go from the general public and historical fact to the private capacity to be open to that general public and historical fact to the actualization of that openness in a sudden private horror at what's happening, as though it's all happening. Um, he does have that poem, I think it's Affliction 5, where he says, um, well, let me, let me just, um, I mean, I think, I think maybe this will um, uh, give you what you need to, give you, give you more of this. Go to, three, to poem 385 which is page, oh no, it's Affliction 3, page 314. Um, again, typical of Herbert, and notice what happens here. This is a little bit like prayer. My heart did heave, and there came forth, oh God. So this is a poem that begins with a sigh. We don't know about what. Everybody sometimes says, oh God, right? And sometimes you don't even know why you're saying it, but suddenly you're just in a, in a dejected and melancholy move mood, and your heart heaves, and you say, oh, God, and you mean it, but you don't know why. Just, you may even say to yourself, wait, what just hit me? So my heart did heave, and there came forth, oh, God, and then that for him is great. By that I knew that thou wast in the grief to guide and govern it to my relief, making a scepter of the rod. So the very fact that that's what came forth from me made me know that you were part of my grief, that you were there, that the grief wasn't simply me being um, melancholy about something, but that in my melancholy, without even thinking about it, I called unto you. Um, so here he's, as uh, to use the horrible social science term, he's modeling for us how to respond to any moment of melancholy sighing that all human beings have. If you say, oh God, listen to yourself because that's the first step towards something good. Remember the Crashaw poem to the woman who um, is thinking about being a Christian but isn't sure? And he's saying, what are you waiting for? You're there. Don't delay because you have the right impulse. Just follow it. Yeah. Well, I mean, wouldn't you say that in, if it's not melancholy then, but it's revelation? Well, melancholy turns into revelation. Right. That is, it turns out when I'm melancholy, um, I, th I think I hear someone saying child. That is, you know, think of the, the, the emotion in the caller is he's angry. But that turns out to be he thinks he hears someone saying child. I'm being so childish. Um, and then as soon as he realizes he's being childish, he realizes that what looks like a failure of God to help him is a sign from God that he's being a child and that children will be taken care of. It's good when you discover you're being childish. What's bad is if you're being childish but don't know it. But if you can just say, whoa, I'm being childish, that's great. It shows what I need and what I want. Um, those who are never childish um, are those who don't believe. 
being childish is protesting in you know a ridiculous and childish way as though someone could do something for you you know i cannot stand this new england weather i mean, really i don't know what to do about it it makes me want to tear my hair out and weep but if you say that um, you would say that's childish because what are you going to do about the weather that's ridiculous um, or it could mean I believe that God should do something about this. And you may not know that that's what you're expressing by protesting against the way things are. But your bitter protest is a sign of belief if you read it right. That's what Herbert is saying. That any time you will that something should be different from the way it is, protest against the fact that things are as they are. Um, whatever emotion you feel, despair or anger or whatever, those emotions are, for Herbert, signs of your belief in God, even though you don't know that you believe. And that belief in God is a good thing. Because even if you don't know you believe, the fact that you believe is a crypto, hidden, secret, but genuine appeal to God. So here in Affliction 3, he's making that point explicit. My heart did heave, and there came forth, oh God. So basically, he's saying anyone who says, oh, God, for any reason, you know, they stub their toe and they say, oh, God, um, what they don't know is that they're showing a fundamental, their fundamental belief in God. They may not know it. But it's not taking the Lord's name in vain. You know, there are people who will say, oh, sugar, um, because they don't want to say God. They don't want to take the Lord's name in vain. But Herbert is saying, no, if you say God, it's because you really really think of him as someone who's part of your life. You know, the way a parent whom you're pissed off at is part of your life, but part of your life. So, my heart did heave and there came forth, oh God, by that I knew that thou wast in the grief to guide and govern it to my relief, making a scepter of the rod. Hadst thou not had thy part, sure the unruly sigh had broke my heart. But since thy breath gave me both life and shape, that is, um, uh, uh, God breathed into Adam's nostrils and um, man became a living soul. But since thy breath gave me both, actually into, into um, man's nostrils and he became a living soul. Um, but since thy breath gave me both life and shape, thou knowest my tallies. And when there's a sign, so much breath to a sigh, what's then behind? Um, so you know what's really in me. If I breathe out so much in a sigh and I say, oh God, think you must know how much of a, of a tropism towards you is within me. Or if some years with it escape, the sigh then only as a gale to bring me sooner to my bliss. Um, if by sighing I will die younger. Um, he died of tuberculosis, so this is actually um, a live possibility. Um, it's, no one quite knows when this poem was written. Um, I should take that back. There's a basic um, division in Herbert's poems between poems that are found in a manuscript that survived and poems that are only found in the printed edition of his poems that was printed after his death. Um, the manuscript poems are earlier because he added poems for the printed edition. The manuscript poems, in a, in a sense, was the first draft. I don't actually know whether Affliction Three is in the manuscript. Um, so if it's not, it, all that would mean is that it's later than the poems that are in the manuscript. Um, but he died of TB at the age of 40. 
um, and um, there are a bunch of poems about breath, which um, seem to at least um, show some intuition of the disease that would kill him, and perhaps the full full on suffering of it. So, um, or if some years with it escape, the sigh that only is a gale to bring me sooner to my bliss. Thy life on earth was grief, and thou art still constant unto it. So notice what he's saying is that you're constant unto the grief that was your life on earth. You're still con you, you, you've gone back to heaven. You're a soul in bliss, and yet you're still constant to grief on earth. How do I know that? Because you are in my sigh. You were in it. You were here on earth when I sighed. So thy life on earth was grief, and thou art still constant unto it, making it to be a point of honor now to grieve in me. So by being constant unto grief, um, and by trying to save me, it's a point of honor to try to save all human beings. You grieve in me. I say, oh God, and that's your grief that exists in my own grief. And the point of honor then is, a, again, another pun on the nail with which he's crucified. The word point is always going to be um, a um, significant word. And in, so you make it a point of honor now to grieve in me, and in thy members suffer ill. So what does the word members mean there? Yeah, it's a, it even says. Well, sort of. Um, yeah, no, it says. So members in the footnote, or members, what does it mean? Both the body and, like, I guess people who believe in Christ would be, like, the members. Of yeah, the members of the church. Yeah. Um, and the word, you're a member of the church because you're part of the, um, the body of the church. This is what it means when the church marries Christ. Um, so you suffer, you make it a point of honor to grieve in me and suffer ill in your members. I'm one of the members of the church, and you suffer um, the pain that I'm suffering. But how else does Christ suffer um, ill? in his members. <coughs> yeah, that is his arms and legs suffer ill. So it's as though I am your arm being crucified. The arm feels pain and the person feels pain. That's the um, kind of uh, philosophical account of perception that Herbert is using here. Um, that we might argue, you know, if you stub your toe, is it right to say that you feel the pain or that your toe feels the pain? And the answer is yes. Um, and that's Herbert's point, that I am sighing out of grief, but what I say when I sigh are the words, oh God, which means that you are part of that, but the reason you're part of that is because you suffered in order that my suffering might be redemptive, in order that when I cried unto you and cared and wanted to be redeemed, I would be redeemed, so that our suffering converges. And so then he says, they who lament one cross, that is those who say, oh no, Christ died for us. It's so terrible what happened in 33 AD. It's not actually 33 AD, but I forget the exact date supposed date. Do you know? Um, they, who, I think it might be 30 AD. It's all complicated because there's no zero AD. Um, in, 
when was it? I think in 19... There was a big celebration for the, for the 2000th anniversary of the birth of Virgil um, among classicists. But then, very embarrassingly, they realized they got the year wrong because they, they forgot that from 1 BC to 1 AD is only one year. Um, because there's no zero AD, it's not, well, we'll start now. It's, um, it just was one AD. Um, so they had to kind of redo it, which they were happy about. Um, so, um, but they, those who lament one cross, that is, so you died once, you were crucified once in 30 AD or whatever, they don't get it. Thou dying daily, Praise thee to thy loss. That is, what they don't understand is what you did was you care about every human being. So every time we feel pain and sorrow and, um, because we live a life of, of sin and, and fear and, and everything else that, that humans are, are heir to, um, and you feel for us because you care about us and love us and, and want to um, um, redeem us. And whenever we feel bad, you feel worse. That's a daily crucifixion for you. So that would be the making private and single the historical event. And that's what redemption is about as well. Um, yeah, you were crucified long since on earth. But when I came and asked for your help, the way you helped me was by being crucified again, by reliving it, by redoing it, because you did it for everyone. And the wrong way to think you did it for everyone is say you did it once and for all for everyone. The right way to think about it is you did it for everyone, so every person who's saved is saved because of your crucifixion for that person. Because you care, you feel for everyone. So those who lament one cross, who say, God, look what he did. He died for us on the cross. They're praising God, but to his loss, because they don't, they're praising Jesus, but to his loss, because they don't get what he really did. It wasn't one time. It was billions of times. Is your hand up? No. Well, is it? But he died for our sins, though, not for our pains. So isn't it, isn't this more of a, I mean, it's called affliction, but wouldn't it really Our pain. more about what, it's like, you know, by us being sinners, we hurt Jesus more than we would need to hurt him, or is it? But like, there's a common conception that you can give your pain onto Christ. It's like, in surrendering to him, you're supposed to displace pain and like everything going on worldly onto this other being. So I can definitely see that. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's and it's why you know in, in Counter Reformation um, iconography, mm -hmm. um, weeping Marys and and weeping and Jesus is the man of sorrows. You know, we have to <coughs> constantly recollect that. I mean, a way to put it would be to say our punishment is pain, but he takes that punishment on himself. Um, he takes that, by taking that punishment on himself, he's really got to take it all. Um, and so every person that he saves, he's taking the punishment of pain on himself from that person. Um, 
But what that means for Herbert is a transmogrification of our pain from punishment into hope. But it still is our pain. It's not, it's not for Herbert that we um, can just get rid of that pain and you know that, that Jesus is an epidural for us. It's that um, we feel the pain, but its meaning changes. And what its meaning changes into is not only pain, but a painful sympathy for the person who is feeling that pain on our behalf. Um, so the pain becomes a sign of itself. Um, the pain refers to itself. And that's what we keep talking about, the way these things are self-referring in Herbert. The pain refers to itself as a sign of what God is feeling for us, instead of just being pain, um, just being punishment. It now becomes Jesus is feeling that punishment. Poor Jesus, but that's the good thought. That's the thought that saves us, is poor Jesus. Um, but it saves us um, because in feeling our pain, we feel the pain of thinking poor Jesus. We feel his pain feeling our pain. And that's the circle. That's the good circle. When we feel he feels our pain, which means he's in pain, and we feel his pain, which comes from the fact that he feels our pain. We feel the pain, his pain so in it's feeling like a, our it's pain. Like a personal version of what you do for your brother, you do for me, what you fail Right, to exactly. Fail, but yeah, it's, yeah. But it's internal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But so what that means is that is that to understand this, that you have to understand the crucifixion as being both a single event in history and a daily event in psychology right. or in, in, in the human soul. Or in, so in as in have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior right. constantly. Right. Yes. Exactly. It's um, a great religion. No, it's, it's super fascinating. No, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just confused. Well, it's I'm deep. <laughs> um, no, it's deep. I mean, basically, real religious um, arguments are always deep ones. Right. And, um, and this is a deep one. So let's just look at the flower. We were only going to spend 10 minutes on her. But, no, this is an easy poem, and it's a lovely one. No, it's a lovely poem. Um, this is a poem of pure praise. And again, it's, look, I, I went through this very melancholy state, and then these are thy wonders. It's a poem of awe, um, but lovely awe. How fresh, O Lord, how sweet and clean are thy returns. Even as the flowers in spring, to which besides their own demean, the late past frosts tributes of pleasure bring. Grief melts away like snow in May, as if there were no such cold thing. So I'm, I'm not going to explain every line, but it's pretty obvious what, what the general meaning is. Who could have thought my shriveled heart could, who would have thought my shriveled heart could have recovered greenness? It was gone quite underground as flowers depart to see their mother root when they have blown, that is when they have blossomed. Where they together all the hard weather dead to the world keep house unknown. So that's during winter. These are thy wonders, Lord of power, killing and quickening, bringing down to hell and up to heaven in an hour, making a chiming of a passing bell. A passing bell is a bell telling um, the death of someone. Um, do not send to know for whom the bell tolls. Um, that's a passing bell that's, that's being told. These are... Um, 
making it chiming something good of a passing bell. We say amiss, this or that is, thy word is all, if we could spell. That is say, if we could read. Spell there means read. Um, oh, that I once past changing were fast in thy paradise, where no flower can wither. Many a spring I shoot up fair, offering it heaven, growing and groaning thither. Nor doth my flower want a spring shower, my sins and I joining together. Um, so he weeps for his sins. But while I grow to a straight line, still upwards bent, as if heaven were mine own, thy anger comes. So that's the collar. And I decline. What frost to that? I mean, what frost compares to your anger? What pole is not the zone where all things burn when thou dost turn and the least frown of thine is shown? So it's worse than the worst frost, worse than the most awful anger. And then this amazing recovery. And now in age I bud again. After so many deaths, I live and write. And he means it. He's writing this poem. So he really does mean that when he's able to write, he gets over the worst melancholy. And it must be that God is helping him, being able to do it is this poem is celebrating the fact that he can write this poem of celebration. And now in age I bud again, after so many deaths I live and write, I once more smell the dew and rain and relish versing. That is writing verse. Oh, my only light, it cannot be that I am he on whom thy tempests fell all night. These are thy wonders, Lord of love, to make us see we are but flowers that glide, which when we once can find and prove thou hast a garden for us where to bide who would be more swelling through store forfeit their paradise by their pride so just be a flower essentially is what he's saying and, and that's wonder yeah winter comes and you go underground but these are thy wonders lord of love okay we will um, try to catch up a bit on Wednesday then there's this vacation where you'll be reading Milton, Milton, Milton all the live long day. That'll be so much fun. Um, but remember, Crashaw, Suckling, um, Cooley, and Loveless for Wednesday. Sorry?